0: Diane and I recently saw a play at Bradley that takes place in the future, and it takes place after some sort of environmental catastrophe has taken place, so civilization has really been kind of wiped out, and the power grid is wiped out, and people are trying to survive, and you see the play open with the survivors of this environmental catastrophe sitting around a campfire, and almost because they really don't seem to have much else to do, they start trying to remember a particular episode of The Simpsons. (laughs) So they're sitting around this campfire after this destruction, And they're thinking about this episode and they're reconstructing word by word all the dialogue from that particular episode of The Simpsons. And they keep, you know, and then some visitors come and maybe they remember a couple lines, you know. And so eventually they reconstruct this episode of The Simpsons line by line. And as the play progresses, this becomes what people do in this new world. They reconstruct and reenact episodes of The Simpsons cartoon show. And so this idea continues and it, you know, there are twists and turns in the plot and all that. But by the end of the play, The Simpsons has become a kind of religion. And in the very last scene, we see them reenact this episode as a liturgical service (laughs) with robes. And there's a group that is very much like a Greek chorus. And it's done in a highly uh, spiritually charged kind of way. This is a weird play. <laughs> but it's powerful too. So just so you know, uh, it's called Mr. Burns, A Post-Electric Play. That's, you can look, look it up later though. I, this is for real. So uh, if you read the reviews and all that, it will say that this is a play about how myths work and how myths come into being, and what causes people to believe something, and why they do that, and you know which stories they choose. It's, it's a commentary on all of them. It, it, it is uh, partly worthwhile because it is so strange. We, in this part of the world right now, are involved in our annual sacred season. We're in it. The snow has fallen. It's official. (laughs) The season is not sacred because everyone believes in the stories. Because that's not true. I'm even, I was thinking while Amy was telling the kids now, do the kids believe this happened, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't think they are necessarily worried about that. It's just a good story. You know? Maybe I should ask some of them later. So it's not that everyone believes the stories, but it is true that almost everyone participates in some way in the celebration of these stories, whether they believe or not. I think that's remarkable. Even hardcore atheists will wear Santa hats and decorate trees and give. Gifts and maybe even sing Christmas carols. So strangely enough, belief, I don't think, is the central issue. In the next uh, month or so, we're going to go through our cycle, which really began with Thanksgiving, goes through Solstice, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, and bringing in the New Year, Actually, my holiday season ends with Martin Luther King Day. That's actually the way I look at it. It's part of that cycle. And during this time, there are going to be songs, pageantry, candles, gifts, feasting, imaginary beings all over the place that people claim to see or know that they are doing something. And we will also at the very end make our vows of transformation for the new year. There are going to be parties and solemn religious services. We're going to have a full range of services here. All the TV shows will have their holiday episodes, even The Simpsons. Many of them will advertise that their show provides the true meaning of Christmas. And every time they say that, I become more skeptical (laughs) that that is, in fact, what they're going to provide. The, The more we see sort of the superficial side of all of these holidays, the more it tends to lose value. But I still think it's amazing that we all do these things. Almost everybody participates this in this in some way. And that to a great extent, we seem to enjoy it. Not just Christmas, but Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all of it. Solstice. It's something real on some level. One of the very traditional stories about this season is going to be done this afternoon at the GAR Hall, where I'm planning to go, A dramatic reading by Doug Day and another of other actors. They do a nice job. This is a story written by Charles Dickens who I guess I'll do a shameless plug and say he was a Unitarian. (laughs) But this story really seems to pass the test of time. It keeps getting told and retold and made into movies and performed all over and over again kinds. there's even a uh, version of A Christmas Carol with Scrooge McDuck a Donald Duck version of A Christmas Carol so no, they're not all wonderful but this story is one of the stories that does seem to persist it, doesn't, it hasn't gone away it's still there every year So why should that story persist and other stories just get told once and pass away? I would say that this story is a story of transformation. A very selfish, mean, greedy old man whose heart is shriveled up into a completely self-centered, isolated life is transformed by some very creative experiences in one night into a loving, generous, joyful, passionate, and intimately connected prophet of love and generosity. He is transformed. And in the story, whether it be done by actual spirits, or maybe some very vivid dreams, it is hard not to shed a tear at the transformation of old Scrooge at the end of the story. And when he picks up Tiny Tim and carries him on his shoulder, it's it's a hard heart that can't feel something in them. Of course, if the story is not well told, if it's not reenacted with depth and feeling, then that may not work. It's got to be told well and with some creative skill. And if it does get told with that sincerity and compassion and honesty, then that story has a reputation for grabbing people's hearts and for many a tear being shed. So why do we feel that? So looking at this story, I would say it's because we resonate with old Scrooge in some way. There's some resonance there with who we are as well. We are not as loving as we might be, and we are still gripped by fear and worry. We're not like Scrooge, not very many, but... We do not yet love in that transformed way. John Shelby Spong, when he was here uh, last year, encouraged us to love wastefully. That's a phrase he repeated, love wastefully. We are not yet, most of us, doing that. So somehow, the story of Scrooge suggests to us a transformation that could take place in us or in the world at large. It tells us something about the kind of world we want to live in. So a story that lasts, I would say, that can be told over and over, does this. It shows us a piece of ourselves. It tells our story, too. Not that we are Scrooge, but that we long to live life more expansively and more lovingly. And when we see that story told in a way that is authentic, then I think that grabs us. Scrooge is what you might call an archetype. He represents a universal human tendency. And this character appears over and over again in human culture. The character that is transformed from greed to love. That's the archetypal situation. The Grinch is another one. The Grinch who stole Christmas. I don't know if you know that. It's a Dr. Seuss children's story. And the Grinch is the mean, shriveled, heart, can't stand Christmas character who eventually gets transformed just like Scrooge does. In the Christian legend, St. Paul is a Scrooge, by the way. We don't know that much about that, but we know that he was noted as being a mean persecutor before he got kind of zapped on the road one day and was transformed into um, someone who becomes a saint in that tradition. So Scrooge represents that struggle that we all have about how selfish or loving we're going to be or whether we're going to be isolated and suspicious and doubtful or are we going to be expansive and joyful and trusting and generous. So what happens if Scrooge does not get transformed? Let's suppose he wakes up that morning... And he says, boy, those were some rotten dreams. Ugh, I'm glad that's over. I'm going to go foreclose on Bob Cratchit right now. (laughs) Then we have a different archetype. Now we have the villain. Now we have the Scrooge who doesn't get transformed. He just stays mean, That, by the way, if you're into the Simpsons, Simpsons would be Mr. Burns. Someone who just stays mean. The wicked stepmother in Sleeping Beauty and other fairy tales. It's Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Potter is that person. He's a Scrooge who never gets transformed. King Herod in the Christmas story is the mean one who is never transformed. Just stays mean. Lady Macbeth. There are lots of them. So we can find these archetypes in all different kinds of traditions, and secular traditions and religious traditions, and we see these different characters who represent different tendencies in our lives. These these people grab us at a deep level too. We know people like this. They do damage in the world. They are harmful. Right now, there are many people who think that the new president might be one of these. (laughs) I'm not going to say his name. (laughs) But we don't know yet. We don't know yet. It's possible that that's true and it should be taken seriously, but we don't know yet. Of course, most of us are neither Scrooge nor Lady Macbeth. We're regular people. And we're trying to live a good life as best as we can. And there are lots of stories about people like us who are decent folks, who are looking for the right way to go. We're on the road of life. And in the lots of the great stories of humanity, somebody like us is going down the road of life and then something happens that sets us off on some journey. Alice chases a rabbit down a rabbit hole, and then all kinds of amazing stuff happens. Dorothy gets caught up in a tornado that carries her house away, and she goes into this journey that will change her and transform her. George Bailey, in It's a Wonderful Life, loses $8,000 through the carelessness of his uncle, And becomes desperate and goes on a journey of self discovery and a journey of discovering what's worthwhile and what isn't. And so these are stories about people like us who something in their life triggers that they go on this kind of journey. And they will be tested for courage and loyalty and love, and there may be monsters on the path. There may be a jabberwock, there might be anything. And often there will be a guide on this journey. For example, in The Wizard of Oz, Glinda the Good Witch is the guide. And in many of these stories, there's a guide. Dante, who has to go through hell, his guide is Virgil. I know you all remember that from high school. George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life has a guide, and that guide is Clarence. Angel. So these are how these stories have their patterns. And these, in, in the Christmas story, by the way, and uh, the guide figures are the angels and the star. They represent the guide figures. The guide figures communicate to us that there's wisdom available in the world that there's wisdom available that will help us get through this challenge, whatever it may be. So that wisdom may come in the form of Glinda the Good Witch or the angels saying go home by another way or it comes in a dream or it comes some way, but it tells us that that is available to us. And that if we engage sincerely on the journey, then there will be help that comes to us. So this is how... This journey of transformation is structured. Sometimes the guide figure becomes heroic in its own right. So sometimes the guide figure is elevated to what we call a prophet. Okay? Martin Luther King is a guide figure for humanity that becomes like a prophet. Gandhi is a guide figure that becomes a prophet. Susan B. Anthony is another one. Nelson Mandela. These are people who show the way for humanity. They're guides and examples. These are guides that lead whole people through the challenge of transformation in some way. A fascinating example is Fidel Castro, Who died this past week and for some people Castro was a guide and a prophet and for other people he was the evil villain so isn't that interesting and by the way the new president probably is like that too in that sense too so we see these figures through different lenses Depending upon our cultural background and our political views and all that, what country we were born in, but this is a piece of how our legends work. So we see these archetypal figures through the lenses of our own experience, just like the opening words said. Sometimes the prophetic guide, the prophetic leader, rises in the myths and in the legends to another level where that person becomes divine. For example, that's what Jesus is in the Christmas story. Now, interestingly enough, in in Unitarianism, Jesus is viewed as a guide. But in Orthodox Christianity, Jesus is divine. And then we have others who are like that as well. Buddha. In, in some traditions, you know, Buddha is a guide, and then there may be those who consider him divine. Krishna, Shiva, Kuan Yin, Kali, these are figures of, of guides who are regarded as holy. And in a sense, being regarded as holy is just a supervaluation of the guide. The guide is so immensely valuable that we're going to call that guide... Divine. And there are lots of them in the legends of the world. These figures represent the possibility of a dramatic breakthrough in consciousness. So, for me, then, the, the baby in the manger, first of all, everybody loves babies anyway, right? But this baby symbolically represents the possibility of dramatic breakthrough. And I think that's very much what resonates with us, whether we believe in that theology or not, because that sense of possibility and that it could, things could change and that there's this immense creativity and power in the universe. This baby is the creativity of the Big Bang, but in a little human-shaped package, symbolically. These people, these figures are the energy of the universe, the divine mystery personified. Human beings have a tendency to personify these forces. That's what we do. That's the way our myths and legends work. These figures will be interpreted in many ways and for some they'll remain strictly beings of the imagination and for others they will be looked at as concrete realities. And so these beings represent the possibility for dramatic change. That's what all of these myths are about. They're about the possibility of dramatic change in our life. Jesus is going to be the prince of peace. Athena, the goddess, is going to bring a new concept called law to a chaotic society. The Buddha is going to show the way to enlightenment. They're going to bring us the possibility of a powerful change. So if we pay attention, we see these archetypal characters and all the many supporting roles, the elves and the angels flying around. All of them are in this season. Stories about all of them. We had a whole story just about the reindeer today. Some of what makes a story memorable is the presence of these archetypal figures, but they need to be taken seriously, really, to to be enduring stories. You can't just fake it. Now, I'm just going to tell you, Hollywood knows how to work these figures. There are people writing stories who understand how to do this to get you to feel something. And sometimes... There is not great authenticity in that at all. And as a matter of fact, people who write commercials know how to do this too. And they can tell an archetypal story in 27 seconds, and then they got three 7 seconds left to attach their product to that story. If you want to experience the true meaning of Christmas, this soap will definitely do it. So they, they know all these things. But when the story is told in a shallow or superficial way, it doesn't last. That will be forgotten. It'll be forgotten before even the next image comes on the screen. It's gone. Because it doesn't go in here and grab you. There is another kind of archetypal story that's present in our culture that I want to mention. And that is the story without meaning. The story that has no meaning. This is a pretty popular story in our culture and the one who really got it was Seinfeld. And made a tremendously successful uh, storytelling career out of telling a story that has no meaning. And it worked. Because in our age, one of our deepest questions is, is there any meaning at all? See, that's a big question for us in our culture. And so when Seinfeld said... This is a show about nothing. That grabbed us. I didn't get hooked at first, but I got hooked later on. Because that is such a huge question for us, whether there's any meaning. I was discussing with my wife whether the Simpsons belong to that group, but I agree that there's a lot of, there are good guys and bad guys in the Simpsons, and there's uh, Lisa, isn't Lisa the daughter? She's a UU. In her temperament. <laughs> if, you, if you read in literature during high school or college, the novel The Stranger by Camus was sort of the big introduction of the the story about life not having a meaning. So this this is a this has become an archetypal story for us in our culture because we are a world struggling to find some kind of meaning that can withstand the challenges of what is a post-mythical world. we We are people who don't believe that stuff anymore. Not only that, we're proud of it. So we have this struggle in our lives. We... We... See King Herod pretty clearly. We can see King Herod when he raises his head in the world, but we're not at all sure that there's a baby anywhere that could help that situation. This is part of our cultural dilemma. And yet, when the time comes, we do sing the songs and we light the candles. And we hear the children's stories. And nobody stands up in the middle of the story and says, that's not true. (laughs) Nobody does that. Because there is truth in the story. And so at this time, we allow ourselves to, to go into those myths and see what could be true in there. What is it that's real? And so... When we go caroling, we put on hats, and some of us have antlers. Some of us have. There's a there's a Hanukkah menorah that's a hat you can wear. It's got all the candles lit. They're not really lit. You can wear that. You can have. There's there's one that's a Cubs hat too. It's a, a Santa Claus. Cubs. Uh, Sherry Waisner got these. Don't I didn't do it. And. There is something about that that works. There is something about that that works. And sometimes we feel the transforming spirit. And we do shed a tear when we see Scrooge carrying off the laughing tiny Tim. We feel that something has happened which is relevant to our lives. We know that this kind of compassion is real and that we long to live in a world where that compassion would be the day-to-day experience. That's the world we want. We know that the stories are often not true historically, but we know also that they touch us somewhere in our hearts and in our brains, maybe we should say. And that's why these are the stories that we celebrate because over these centuries, those stories have grabbed people in our hearts. And we know that when King Herod comes to get us, we may need more than Jerry Seinfeld and Elaine and George and Kramer. Although they may have creative contributions that we cannot foresee. But we are going to need Martin Luther King And we're going to need Gandhi. And we're going to need what John Shelby Spong calls this wasteful love the love of Scrooge. Where Scrooge is so happy, he can almost not even stay in his skin. He's so happy. Just doesn't even know what to do. We seek the transformation too. And although many of the best stories are not exactly true, they can still lead us into an experience of the very best in life and our very best self. A place where we can say, in whatever words that suit our world view, whatever that may be, we can say something like, God bless us, everyone. May that happen to us this year.